Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. I usually don't begin by asking you to take out your sermon notes and requesting you to make sure you fill them out, but I'm going to do that today. So you should have sermon notes in your bulletin. Please make sure you get them out. Please make sure you fill them in. We have a lot to cover, and I think everything we're going to cover this morning is going to be very beneficial for you. If you're somebody who's new with us this weekend, my name is Kurt, and I'm one of the pastors, and this is a lot of fun to be able to teach with God's Word to you today. Uh, I like summer and in the lakes. Summer's a lot of fun. There's lakes. There's so many things you can do. But I also like the fall because, quite honestly, the summer is sort of chaotic, at least in our life. And I like fall when you at least get back to some kind of organization, some kind of regimentation and order in life. And that's what we're doing here at Crosswinds. Last week, we finished our summer series called Broken Vessels, where we looked at how God uses ordinary people and broken people in significant ways for his kingdom on this earth. And this coming week, or coming Sunday, next Sunday, we'll pick up our studies in 2 Samuel that we had put on pause at the beginning of the summer. Uh, we'll be picking up in 2 Samuel chapter 11, which should be a chapter that really gets your attention. Because that's the chapter about David and Bathsheba. So we're going to have an affair, we're going to have sex, we're going to have murder. And if you don't lean in and listen for that one, nothing's going to get your attention. But before we go back to our regular studies in 2 Samuel next week, we have this week, which is a Sunday where we're going to do an independent, standalone message. And you wonder, well, what's this message going to be about? This summer, when Pastor Jordan and I were doing some planning over a cup of coffee, we thought it would be good to do at least two messages a year on money and giving. It seems like money is always in short supply these days, so maybe we should talk about it a little bit. We decided to do one in the fall and one in the spring, and t today is the day we're going to do this message on money today. Now, as soon as some of you heard me that we're going to talk about money, you began to get a little nervous because you're like, ah, money, he's going to guilt me today, make me feel terrible. I think I should work in the nursery. And you want to leave and like, I'd rather change a dirty diaper than listen to what this guy's going to say about money. Well, please think about this a little differently. Everything I'm going to say this morning is coming right out of Scripture. And you need to know that what God's Word says to you about finances, it's all for your freedom it's all for your joy. It's all because of God's goodness. It's not because God wants to guilt you or put you into bondage. He wants to free you from so much of the greed and the sinful things that are causing difficulty in so many people's lives. So I ask you to take notes because freedom from financial bondage is going to be found as we obey God's word. And those things you need to know are right in your notes that we're going to go over today. So what's the big heading we're going to build this on? this whole message around, it's this. What does the Bible say about acquiring money? You know, gaining money, saving money, building wealth. That sounds like an appealing topic because all of us want to do that. These are the main points we're going to look at under. First, we're going to look at, is it wrong to acquire money? Then we're going to look at, what is the danger of loving the money that we acquire? Then we're going to look at, what are some wrong ways to acquire money? 
Then we'll look at what are the right ways to acquire money. And lastly, uh, why, why do so many Christians end up running short on money and what can we do about it? So very practical stuff this morning. So let's begin right on top of your outline. Is it wrong to acquire money? You need to know that in Christendom, uh, there are a group of Christians out there who will typically say that um, believers should not acquire wealth. They believe Christians who are truly spiritual people and wonderful people should live on bare subsistence levels in life. They see poverty as spiritually superior to prosperity. And the reason they claim poverty is better is they say poverty is better because that way you don't have money and money tends to make greedy people. It tends to make corrupted people. So if you have no money, you don't have the temptation of money and you tend to be spiritually better. And I'm just going to tell you right up front, that's not true at all. All money does is it reveals the corruption that is in someone's heart. It doesn't create corruption in the heart. The other side is also true. If you have somebody who has a righteous heart and a godly heart and a good heart, what money does is it reveals the righteousness in their heart as they use their money in good and righteous ways. They give their money in places that God would have it go. So money is not inherently evil. It just is a tool, a tool that enables a corrupt heart to do more evil things and a tool that enables a righteous heart to be able to do more good things. Money itself is neutral. And then I can't, oh, there we go. This brings us to point A. God created us to have money and he created us actually to make money. We see this in Haggai chapter 2, verse 8. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Realize that when God created this earth, he created it with silver in the ground, he created it with gold in the ground, he created it with trees, he created this earth with resources for a reason. He wants us to take those resources from the, the earth and create value and do good with them. That's why it says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. So God has given us the ability to mine the gold that he put in the ground, to mine the silver he put in the ground, to refine the gold and to purify it. He's given us the ability to cut down the trees that he has growing on the earth and to turn those into boards and to make houses and to make products that do good for other people and keep them warm in the winter and produce blessing to other people. And in the process of doing that, he knows we will create wealth, we will create resources and money, and he wants us to do that. That's okay. Now, as I say this, we should acknowledge that not everybody is given the same opportunity and the same levels of skills to be able to create wealth. You and I know that some are just more creative than others. Some are more in, has more ingenuity than others. Some have better leadership skills than others. Some have better creativity than others. So it stands to reason that some will be able to create greater levels of wealth than others. We shouldn't begrudge them 
if they've been given those gifts. We should be thankful that they have greater levels of resources and creativity and that they can make more jobs for other people, which then blesses more people. That's a good thing. But the key to remember as this takes place, as wealth is created, we don't create wealth and then look in the mirror and say, look what I have created. Look what I have done. I've done this all from my own strength and for my own glory. <laughs> Actually, it's the opposite. Anything you have in the bank account right now, the job that you have right now, the home that you have right now is a gift to you from God out of his goodness, out of his kindness. And when you look at your wealth, it should cause you to give more honor and praise and glory to him. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Everything we have is a gift. Next point under this. God created money for our enjoyment, not just necessities. This is a good question we should wrestle with. God's created wealth in the world. He gives us the ability to mine that wealth and to use those resources. We can create wealth. But are we supposed to just use our wealth for bare subsistence living? Or can we actually enjoy things with their extra resources we can accumulate? Well, the Bible says this in 1 Timothy. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, and what does God do? Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So God has given us wealth, not just for bare necessities, but many times he gives us wealth that we can be able to do things that we enjoy. We can purchase a, a, a new couch and thank God that we can do that. Maybe some of us are in the purchase a position of being able to purchase a new car or at least a new-to-me car. Thank God that he gave us the wealth so we can purchase those things and then enjoy those things. That's not necessarily wrong. Now, why has God given us extra wealth so we can purchase not just the necessities in life, but why has he given us extra wealth so we can purchase things that we actually enjoy in life? I'll tell you why. It's because we have a very good God. We have a very kind God, and we have a very loving God. Think back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. Was it just subsistence, bare, scraping by living? Or was the garden filled with all kinds of things that were pleasures and joys? What do you think? It was filled with all kinds of pleasure and joy. There's only one thing, a piece of fruit they were not to eat. Everything else they were to enjoy because God was very good to them. But when sin came in the world, sin is what brought suffering. Sin is what brought scarcity. Sin is what brought difficulty. And sin is what brought death. That's not God's desire, that we would have death and suffering and scarcity. No, he's a good God. So... What we've learned so far is two things. Number one, God has created us with the ability to gain wealth, and it's okay to gain wealth, and it's even okay to do some things we enjoy with that wealth. Also, he's a good God, which he's given us things to enjoy when it comes to that wealth. I'll give you some other thoughts with that. 
Some of you had enough wealth that you can travel. That's a good thing. I know a number of you have actually traveled to Alaska. And you've told me, you said, you have to see Alaska. You see Alaska, it is so amazingly beautiful to see what God's untouched wilderness looks like. It just makes you want to worship him more. Well, praise God that God's given you the wealth to make a trip to Alaska, and you had the proper response to seeing Alaska, which is to have that experience of Alaska cause you to love God more. Some of you have gone to Israel, and you said, I've read things in my Bible for years, but now I actually get to see those very places that I've read about since I was a child, and I love God more. I love my Bible more. Well, praise God, he gave you enough wealth to go there. And I'm thankful he did. That's just his goodness and his kindness. Now that moves us to our second question. What's the danger of loving money? So we can have money, we can have enough money to experience some things that are pleasurable in loving money, pleasurable in life, excuse me. But what's the danger of loving money after we spend too much time with it? Here's the first point. The love of money leads to loss, suffering, and pain. 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. When people start to begin to long for the paycheck and love the paycheck, they end up following all kinds of sinful and suffering paths in their lives. They become greedy. They become stingy. They start to become living representations of the, or the Scrooge off of the Christmas story. They begin to sacrifice their wife or their spouse for their monthly paycheck. Now, when we think of loving money, oftentimes we think that the only people who really love money are the people who have lots of money. But I was doing some reading this week, and it was a good challenge, the author said. He said, the way you can tell if somebody loves money, it's about how they do their work. If somebody doesn't have a huge salary, but they do a half-hearted job because they don't think they're paid well enough, the truth is they're in love with money and only think they need to do a good job if they're paid enough money. And you notice they're never paid enough money. Isn't that always true? Here's the truth. Whatever our job is, I don't care if it's in construction work, I don't care if it's in office work, we do our absolute best in our work. Doesn't matter how much we're paid. We do our absolute best, because I'll tell you the way it works. When we do a really good job, our paycheck will follow. It does not work the other way around. We don't end up getting paid more, so then we're going to actually decide later to work more. It doesn't work that way, does it, guys? Performance precedes pay. So we do a really good job, and if we don't do a good job when we work, it's because we're actually in love with our money, and we always feel we have a, never have enough. Second thing, the love of money leads us away from God. Jesus says this in Luke 16, 13. No servant can serve two masters. For he, either, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Each one of us needs to make a decision in our life what's most important. 
pleasing God or getting a big paycheck. Because there will come a time in our life that we'll have to make a choice between one or the other. That if we please God, it's going to cost us financially in that situation. Or we can please our paycheck and we're going to betray God. We will face those choices. Just prepare yourself in that moment. That choice is coming if you haven't already faced it. And the way you decide will reveal what you truly, truly love. And if you love money, it will not end well because you cannot love God and money at the same time. Look at the scriptures about those who loved money and how it ended for them. For instance, for money, Achan defeated Israel his, and he died and he also ended up with the death of his family. For money, Balaam cursed God's own people. For money, Delilah betrayed Samson to his death. For money, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the church and to the apostles and were struck dead by God. For money, Judas betrayed Jesus. Not good company, is it? It's much, much better to choose to please God and let it cost you money. The book of Proverbs, and most of the Proverbs are written by Solomon, but not all of them. And Proverbs 30 is written by a man named Augur. Augur wrote that proverb when he was watching Solomon and how he lived. One of the things that Solomon was notorious for were his wives. He had over 900 wives. And I always thought that's strange. I mean, most men would be happy just to have one, right? And maybe somebody who's really out of control would have two or three. You can find like the Mormon thing in Utah, but 900? I mean, how could he even keep their names straight? I'm sure he didn't. One of the authors I was reading this week, he proposed that the reason that Solomon had 900 wives was not because he was such a Casanova, but because he was so greedy. See, each one of these women, daughters of foreign kings, when they came into his kingdom and he married them, they brought part of their national treasure and his wealth went up, 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 his bank account never had enough, always wanting more. But the problem is that when you always want more and you're filled with greed, these ladies didn't just bring a portion of their national treasure, they also bought their foreign gods with them. And as a result, even though God had appeared to Solomon twice in his younger years, he ends up walking away from God in his older years because you cannot love God and money at the same time. You have to make a choice. Now, Augur, uh, the man who wrote Proverbs 30, saw this happening in Solomon's life, and he penned these words. He says, far, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me lest I be full and deny you and say, where is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Augur says, my prayer is not that I be rich because I don't want to become rich like Solomon and end up denying you. I don't want to be super poor so I steal. God, you just give me what you think is sufficient for me. You give me what you think is right for me. No more, no less, I trust you to provide for my needs. So we've 
looked at uh, money in general. Is it okay to earn it, build some wealth? The answer is yes. We've looked at the danger of loving money. And we don't want to love their money. We want to love our God who gives us money. And if we get those wrong, it's disaster. Now we get to the super practical part of the message, which is the rest of the way through. What does the Bible say about how to acquire money? Let's begin by looking at some of the wrong ways to acquire money. First of all, we are not to steal it. Exodus 20 verse 15 says, you shall not steal. You say, well, why are you starting there? Isn't that sort of obvious? Yes, it is sort of obvious, but in certain cities in our country, you are not arrested unless you steal more than $1,000. So people are apt to steal a lot less than $1,000 all the time. So I just thought we'd make it clear. It doesn't matter if you steal $5 or you steal $5,000. God says, thou shalt not steal. That's the wrong way to build your wealth. Secondly, we're not to exploit others, to gain it. Proverbs 22, do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. This is taking advantage of the poor because they're in the position of poverty. It's somebody who has a business and they're pretty wealthy and they need employees. So they hire the poor to work at a minimum wage job in long hours and in difficult conditions while the owner of the company just continues to enrich themselves and does nothing to care for the poor workers. In fact, actually oppresses them and uses them. And God says, that's not the way to enrich yourself. I'm going to fight for the poor. I'm going to fight against you, not for you. Another way, we are not to withhold from others what is rightfully due them. Leviticus 19, verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired man shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Simple way to put it. If you owe a bill, you pay a bill, and you pay that bill on time. Now, I have had a number of friends as a pastor who are uh, self-contractors. They work in either electricity or plumbing or tile or all kinds of things, self-contractors. And I've talked to a number of them over the years. They'll do work. They'll have a contract, an agreed-upon price. They'll get the work done, and then they give the final bill. And you know what? The bill doesn't tend to get paid. Or if it does get paid, it gets drug out month after month after month until it gets paid. That's not fair. That's taking and using your contractor's money as if it was your money. It's oppressing that contractor who's now in a position of a real financial pinch. I've known others who after they have a contract and it's agreed, that the self-employed person does the work for them and they just don't get paid at the end. And the person says, well, I think it's too high. Well, you agreed to the price. You signed for the price. And then, of course, they drag it all out till it goes to small claims court. By the time it gets to the end of the small claims court, that's reduced in the bill. And that's just their way of reducing a bill that's already been agreed upon. The Bible says, that's not right. That's wicked. That's evil. That's not the right way to increase your wealth. Here's another way. We are not to gamble for money. Just so you know, there is no verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt not go to the Wild Rose Casino. You will not find it. 
but the Bible does have a lot to say about greed. It has a lot to say about trying to get something for nothing and has a lot to say about making poor financial choices. For instance, we've covered this verse already, but I'll read it again. 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And what is gambling? Loving money. It's through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Greed, loving money, trying to get something for nothing, will result in a great amount of pain and suffering in your life. Now, actually, I preached an entire sermon on gambling at one point. It was about 19 years ago, October 2004. I looked it up in my notes. And as I thought about gambling, a number of the points in that sermon came back they, to me because they were still on the tip of my mind. And I pulled my notes out to pull some additional points out of that message. Let me just tell you some of these things so you understand what gambling is to society and to people. Gambling is the most effective tax ever created on the poor. It's those who do not have money who are quickest to gamble and lose it all. Gambling is an extremely profitable business, not for the patron, but for the casino. The patron usually uses all their money. Slot machines, just so you know, are not actually random. They're programmed to give regular payouts in such a scientific way to, as to keep you addicted and pulling the arm trying to get more. One in five homeless Americans contribute gambling to their losing it all and being on the street. 75% of addicted gamblers will commit crime to be able to continue to gamble money away. Gambling is highly destructive to family and society. When I pulled this data about 19 years ago, I don't know if it's still true, but at the time, Las Vegas was number one in suicide and number one in divorce in the nation. Why do you think Las Vegas, Nevada was number one in suicide and divorce? I'll let you take a guess. It's called gambling. Uh, in the Las Vegas phone book, I found this statistic. When it comes to prostitution, that section is 136 pages long. Do you think gambling's been a real help for that society? One mother in New York, I found another article, she took out a $200,000 life insurance policy on her newborn daughter. A week after she took it out, she suffocated her daughter to death and tried to collect the insurance money. She took the money and ended up going back to the casino because she was an addicted gambler. So she took her own daughter's life. Now, as a pastor, I oftentimes get to know people and I get to know the challenges and difficulties they're going through in life. And I'll share with you uh, about one particular challenge a guy went through with gambling. Uh, this is not somebody who's in this church, but somebody in a church I pastored before I came here. I had met this individual in a coffee shop and we had built a relationship. He was a former sniper for the U.S. Army, quite good at what he did, and um, shared the gospel with him. He eventually started coming to church. Things were going really well. And then around November, it was Thanksgiving time, he just stopped coming to church. And I didn't think anything of it. I thought maybe he was traveling or doing something. And then it was the week before Christmas, a few days, and I was in my basement studying for the Christmas Eve message, and I heard the doorbell ring. My wife opened the door and let him in. It was, it was him. He came downstairs to my basement, <clears throat> had some money in his hand, rolled up $100 bills, and he threw it on my desk. And he said, hey, pastor, 
Merry Christmas. And I looked at it and I rolled it and I was like, you don't have to give me a couple hundred dollars for Christmas. That's super kind of you, but you don't have to do that. And then I learned the rest of the story. Right around Christmas time, he had completed the sale of a piece of property he owned and made over $100,000 in profit. And that's when he went to the casino. And in those three and a half weeks, he gambled almost all of it away. That money that he threw on my desk, it was a few hundred dollars, was all that was left. Folks, if you are somebody who is struggling with gambling, if you find yourself addicted to that or involved in that, please talk to me after the service. I want to pray for you. I want to help you. I want to get you out of that. That is not the way God wants you to play with your money. It's truly not a way you're actually going to gain money. Is it an addictive, destructive thing that is this really hard thing on our society? Well, the next side is this. What are the right ways to acquire money? Let me give you some positive examples. We can receive financial gifts or an inheritance. You can do finan receive financial gifts for two reasons. Sometimes gifts are given for strategic reasons, and sometimes gifts are given just because you want to bless somebody and encourage somebody. An example of a strategic gift was my grandmother. When I had graduated from college, I had my computer science degree. At the time, I had worked for IBM as a programmer. I had also worked for AT&T as a programmer. So I really knew what that industry was like. And I was really struggling if that's what I should do. I, I didn't know. And I thought, you know, I really wanted to go to seminary just for one semester, just to study my Bible more and see what would happen from there. But as you would guess, somebody who's graduated from college has no money, right? And my grandmother, she was so sweet. Her motto was, I'm going to do my giving while I'm living. That way I'm knowing where it's going. So she said, I'll tell you what, I'll pay for one semester for you to go to seminary. And she did. And the reason, or one of the reasons I'm your pastor today is in large part was because of her strategic gift. I would say that was money well spent, wouldn't you? Yeah, really good. But you don't just have to give gifts for strategic reasons, to help people to be able to go places and do things they wouldn't normally be able to do. Sometimes you can just give gifts because you want to bless somebody and encourage somebody. This summer, uh, some unknown family to us gave my wife a, a, a gift, a financial gift. It was very generous and kind of them. I don't know who they are, very gracious. And my wife was just overwhelmed, like, what do I do with this? And so the first, her first thought was, I'm going to spend it on my kids. I'm going to help my kids. And I thought, well, that's okay. I know you're a good mom. Always want to help your kids. But I think whoever gave this really wanted to bless you and be an encouragement to you. So yeah, use it for your kids, but do something for yourself that we wouldn't normally do as a family. So she thought about it long and hard for a few weeks, and she ended up deciding to buy like a, a table for the back porch with some chairs around it. That way, when the kids come over in the summer, they can all sit together. See, as a mom, it always goes back to the kids, doesn't it? But here's the neat part. Every single time we look, look at that table, every single time we sit at that table, we are so encouraged through someone's generosity and kindness to us. And that's good. Now, by the way, this will really shock you. While it's good to receive gifts, 
the Bible says it's actually better to be the one giving the gift. Did you realize that? Acts 20, 35. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You say to yourself, well, how could that be true? When we get to the end of the message, you'll find out the answer. Let's continue to look at some more positive ways we can earn money and acquire money. Secondly, we can invest money. We can invest our money for a return. Matthew 25, 27. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. Here's Jesus saying, by the way, if you have money, I would expect that you would invest that money and make a return on the investment of that money. You're not just putting it under the mattress and hiding it. You're trying to use your money to make more. That's a wise way to acquire wealth. Now, this is not a risky venture. This is not a gambling-type venture. It's obviously a wise venture. Another way to make money. We should work for money. By the way, this is not the most popular way to make money, but it's probably the way that most of us will make our money. We'll actually go to work and make it. The Bible says this, Exodus 20, verse 9. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And you know the rest of that. Then it goes on, the seventh day shall be a Sabbath day, which means a stop day to the Lord. And not to get into the whole Sabbath thing, but I just want to point out, what are you supposed to be doing the other six days? Going to work, creating money, getting some wealth that way. Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul is so practical here. You're a thief. Stop stealing and taking from other people. Get a job. Go to work. And don't just provide for your own needs, but have enough money that you can actually give some away to help provide for other people's needs. So be a giver and don't be a taker. While discussing this idea of work, we should talk about the way we do our work. I believe that when we work, we should work very hard. We should do our absolute best on the job and not slack our way through. Maybe some of you have a very hard job. You have a very demanding job, and you don't necessarily like it being so hard and demanding. But I'll tell you this. It's far better to have a hard job and a demanding job than to have no job. Having no work is far worse than having too much work. Because work builds self-respect. Work develops people's gifts and their talents. Work allows us to be productive. It keeps us from being idle. It keeps us from falling into sin. Work keeps us from wasting our time and wasting our lives. One of my favorite sayings for young men is this. Young men are like trucks. They only pull straight when they're carrying a full load. Young men have an incredible capacity for work. They can do a ton of work. The problem is most young men do not know how to discipline themselves to get a lot of work done. They do a little bit of work, then they stop and they say they have to go have fun. And they get involved in all kinds of evil things and destructive things and wasteful things. They do a little bit of work and want to have fun. But I'm not saying fun is bad, but they get involved in all kinds of unproductive things. And here's my answer to that. Go back to work, 
you're capable of doing more work than you realize. If you find yourself wasting time and money over here, get another job. You're capable of a lot of work. Here's another one. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. When it comes to work, don't be somebody who always talks about doing something but never actually does any action about it. Don't be a mere talker, be an actual doer. People get tired of talkers. They resent, ta they resent talkers. I'll give you an example of this. My wife's mother was married twice. You know, my, my wife comes from the product of her second marriage, and we've asked her about her first marriage. And she would say, you know, we say, what happened, Nancy? Why did that marriage not last? And she would always say this, this little phrase, he was all talk and no action. Always making promises, but never actually doing anything about them. <laughs> now here's another one. For even when we were with you, we would give you this commandment, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Well, Paul is writing to people who are inside the church, and he says, I love this. You have people who don't want to go to work, who want to stay home, just don't feed them. That'll motivate them. You don't work, you don't eat. What I'd like to mention is a society that promotes laziness. A society that promotes people staying home and not going to work will be a society filled with problems. As a general rule of thumb, too much government handouts builds a lazy, selfish, chaotic, and crime-ridden society. It's the way it works because people have too much time in their hands. They don't build self-respect, they don't build talent, they don't build skills, they just get involved in destructive things. One example that was, came to mind as I was writing was a conversation I had with a, a manager in one of our businesses in the area. And during COVID, you remember how the government was giving all kinds of money if you were out of work? Well, he ended up having to shut down the plant one day a week. The reason is because the employees learned that if they could say to the government they didn't work one day a week, the paycheck they got was actually worth more than the paycheck they earned. So they just ended up having a four-day work week because they couldn't get anybody to come because the government paid them so much money to do absolutely nothing but stay home. That's counterproductive. Here's another one. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but they're busy bodies. Somebody who's idle ends up being a busybody who doesn't end up doing anything productive at home and in society. Now let me also say this, just so I'm clear. Is there a place for social safety net programs? Absolutely, yes, I'm clear about that. And as a church, we should be involved in helping people who are in times of need what does the Bible say that pure religion is? Looking after orphans, looking after widows, looking after those in distress. So we should be involved in that. But the other side is, do not be in a society and don't lean into this idea of de-incentivizing work. We're created to work. Here's another piece. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. 
without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. I love this. Because you know what ants are like? They're called self-motivated workers. They work really hard, and there's no boss over them with a whip making sure they actually do their job. That's the way we're supposed to be. Self-motivated, hard workers. I mean, you don't see an ant sitting off on the side watching cat videos or TikTok videos on YouTube instead of doing their work, do you? No, they're all working hard and they're self-motivated. That's the way work should be for us. Here's another one, Proverbs 20, verse 4. The sluggard does not plow in autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Lazy people will always have an excuse for why they cannot do work and why they cannot get to work. Some of you know that my middle son, he manages a knife sharpening plant in Ames. He has about a crew of about 10 guys. And there's always just a handful of them who always have an excuse for why they're late to work, always have an excuse why they can't go to work. You know, the alarm didn't go off. There was too much traffic. My car didn't. It's a long list. But the thing he's noticed is you have about 80% of the crew that never has a problem getting to work, but it's always the same 20% of the crew that never makes it to work. And the truth is it's not that they have real problems, is that they're actually sluggards. They're lazy. They're not motivated to work. But when it comes to us, we're different. This is what it says in Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. As Christians, when we go to work, we work really hard, not just because our earthly boss may be looking, but because our heavenly boss is always looking. We serve an audience of one. And when we do our work, we do our best for Jesus Christ. So we've looked at some different ways to acquire money. We've looked at investing. We've looked at having gifts. We've looked at working. How about this one? We should save money to acquire it. Proverbs 21.20. Precious treasure and oil are in the wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. A fool spends their entire paycheck. A wise person always sets aside a small portion of their paycheck to prepare for the future. Look what it says. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. In the summer, the ants save up to prepare for the winter. Folks, this is hard in our society. Things cost a lot, and there's plenty of things pulling out our resources, but we need to prepare for the future. One day, we'll be too old to work. We have to save for retirement, don't we? One day, your kids are going to go to college, and you have to figure out how do you have money to help them go. One day, you may have a car that breaks down on a big financial expense. Have you set aside any money to prepare for that day? Wise people prepare for the future they acquire money by saving it. The next one is this. We should budget the spending of our money. Living without a budget is known as financial suicide. And I'm not understating that. If you live without a budget, you will be destroyed because there are so many things seeking to take your money away. Look what the Bible says. Proverbs 27, 23 through 24. 
Know well the condition of your flocks. Give attention to your herds, for riches do not last forever, and, a, and does a crown endure for all generations. It's your job to know how your financial investments are doing. It's your job to know the size of your bank account. It's your job to make sure you're putting money into that bank account regularly. No one's gonna do it for you. Don't blame anybody else. You have to tend to those things and watch those things, and a wise person does those things. They set up a budget. They limit their spending to be able to prepare for those things. Speaking of a budget, what makes living by a budget so incredibly hard in our society are these things called credit cards. Do you know what I'm talking about? I did some statistical reading on credit cards this past week, and I want to share with you what I learned. These statistics are current as of 2022. The average person has $3,911 on their credit card today. The average family is carrying a credit card date of debt of $6,027. 29% of credit card holders today are only able to make the minimum monthly payment. The average interest rate of the balance that people are carrying on their credit cards is 19%. People spend 80% more money at a store if they're buying with a credit card than actually paying with cash. 70% of credit card holders are not able to pay off their credit card balance at the end of the month. 70%. Folks, what is that? That's called financial slavery. And it comes from not having a budget. It comes from not restricting your spending. The Bible says this in Proverbs 22, verse 7, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes a slave to the lender. If you are somebody this morning who is here and you're not living by a budget, you have not learned to restrict yourself, so you have a budget that helps you prepare for the future, save for retirement, and put away some in case of a crisis, and you're just spending it all away on credit cards, what I'd ask you to do is talk to me after the service. We have people in this church who are very good financially, who can help you build a budget, who can help you build a saving plan, an investment plan, and a retirement plan. We would love to help you with that. Please talk to me after the service. After the first service, I had people talking to me. You won't be the first. A lot of people are in a tough spot when it comes to this financially. Lastly, what does the Bible say about running short on money? Here's the thing I want to tell you. Stingy people won't have enough. One of the reasons that Christians often run short on money is because they do not give enough away. That's honestly true. The Bible says that when we take a portion of our money and we get it to where God wants it to go, we use it to help resource things that God wants to do, such as supporting your church, supporting missionaries, supporting benevolent needs that may come across your path or other things. When we get our money that places God wants it to go, he will pay us back and he will take care of us financially. Which is why, by the way, as I said earlier, it's always more blessed to be the giver than to be the receiver. 
Look what it says in Proverbs eleven twenty four. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give, yet he only suffers want. The writer of Proverbs is looking at the way the life works. Is why do these people who are generous, why do they end up with more money and the stingy people have less money? Because that is the way God works the world. That is the way God works. Or Luke 6.38, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. This is Jesus says, you give and God will give back to you. But by the way, he's not a stingy giver. You ever get one of those boxes of crackers, you open it, it's like only half full, and you read the side, contents packaged by weight, not by volume, may settle during shipping. God's not that kind of a giver. He packs it in, doesn't he? He presses it down. He has it running over. When he gives back to us because we give back to him, he is a generous giver. The question is, do you actually believe this? Do you actually live this? Do you make financial choices that follow this? Look what the scripture says here. This is from the book of Haggai. Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, for you have sown much, but you've just harvested a little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag that has a hole in the bottom of it. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I just blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. At this time, people in Israel were building their own houses. And the Bible says they were building nicely paneled houses, beautiful houses, but they left God's house in complete ruins. God's priests were getting second jobs to find a way to put food on the table. And God says, you expect me to bless you? You expect me to give to you when you won't even do anything to take care of my own house? Later on in Haggai, he says, test me and see. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse and see if I will not throw open the very floodgates of heaven for you. Test me. Try me out. Now, by the way, this idea of God giving back to those who are generous givers it's not just an Old Testament thing. It's a New Testament thing as well. You go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he pulls this principle out. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And as Iowa farmers, we understand how this works. If you put 10 kernels of seed in the ground, you only get the results of 10 kernels of seed. You put a thousand kernels of seed in the ground, you get a much bigger harvest. And Paul just says to the Corinthians, he says, well, how much do you want God to bless you? How generous do you want to be to this offering that we're taking for the people that are in Jerusalem? You be generous with it, and God will be generous with you. It's really just up to you. And some of you say, well, and they said this in the Corinthians, but if I give too much, I won't have enough, and I won't have enough to meet my needs. And Paul follows up with this. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all times and all things, you may be able to abound in every good work. Do you think God doesn't have enough resources to take care of you? Have you seen anybody in the soup line that says, I'm sorry, I just put too much in the offering plate? Absolutely not. He gives to his givers and he provides for their needs. So one of the reasons Christians often don't have enough is because they simply don't give enough and they don't trust that God will give back to them. And he never fails on that. It's an Old Testament as well as a New Testament principle. Let me cover one more point before we pray here. Hastiness leads to poverty. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. You know what hastiness is? It's called impulsive spending. You know that you can go down to one of those boat dealerships and you can walk out in less than 60 minutes over $100,000 in debt, just like that. You can go to a car dealership in less than 60, 000, less than 60 minutes, you can walk out with 60, 70, 80, 90,000 dollars in debt, just like that, even if it's not a financially wise decision. You know you have this little app called Amazon? Dangerous app. You can find anything and slide your finger across the screen, and two days later it's at your door. And all of a sudden you look at your bill. Did I spend that much money? It's impulsive buying. Society knows that if they can get you to buy impulsively, you'll spend far more money than you should and put yourself into debt. Here's my recommendation for you. If you have to make a purchasing decision, wait at least 24 hours before you do it. If it's a bigger decision, wait at least a, a, wait at least a week. If it's a really big decision, if you can, wait at least a month to consider it. There's plenty of things that I really wanted I thought about a few weeks later and I said, boy, am I thankful I didn't buy that because it was an impulsive decision where I was lured in by advertising. And if I can follow that, you can follow that, we can all follow that. And hasty, impulsive decisions can lead to not having enough money. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what your word says to us about how to acquire wealth. Thank you that you're a good God. You've created this earth with resources that can be mined and used and be used to bless others. Thank you that we can acquire wealth and that wealth can be something that we can actually enjoy and we can do good things with those resources and enjoy those resources. I ask that as we gain resources, whatever the size of our bank account is today, that we would not be people who fall in love with the money we have, but we would fall in love with the God who gives that money to us. I ask that you would help us to acquire wealth in good and wise ways. And Father, I ask you to also help us especially to remember that one of the best ways to make sure we have enough is to make sure we give enough. That we can never outgive you, our gracious, wonderful, kind, and loving God. Just use us. Use us to get the resources you've trusted in our hands into places, them you, places you want it to go. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.